you woke up that Tuesday morning like everyone else. The prospect of a new day hanging over you. It was a Tuesday that was in many respects, you thought, a continuation of Monday. In many respects, a continuation of the week you just had or maybe that year that you were enjoying. To many, prospects beyond that Tuesday vied for the priority of your heart. There was a wedding upcoming. Like me, there was a baby on the way. To some, it was seats at a game later that day or concert tickets for the upcoming weekend. Your life was simple. It was wholesome. It was routine. The economy was strong and your country was secure. Your daily life seemed to have meaning and purpose centered around today. Thoughts of papers left on the desk from the night before. The lengthy elevator ride to the office. The walk from the parking lot amidst the brilliant D.C. sunshine. As you awoke that Tuesday, 15 years ago today, many others awoke and they boarded subways, taxis, minivans, and airplanes. They headed out to do life just like yesterday. Minus just a few. They boarded planes to go see loved ones and close business deals and find some desired vacation time. Things began to change that Tuesday at 8.44 in the morning when a call came in from a flight attendant to the American Airlines Flight Service Center in Dallas. She informed them, quote, something's wrong. We're in a rapid descent. We're all over the place. It was then that our lives changed forever. Every single life. At 8.46 a.m., traveling at 466 miles per hour, that American Airlines plane wrote a new story in American history and pushed many lives from this world. You did the same thing that many did. You stopped what you were doing when someone mentioned to you what had happened. Your thoughts were like so many others. How awful must be an accident. And you found a television somewhere or a radio and you tuned in and the images began to just wash over you. At 9.03 a.m., Flight 175 slams into the south face of the South Tower. Lower Manhattan is spiraling into chaos and you're now watching evil take over not only your day but the rest of your life and the costume that it's wearing this time is the shameless wickedness we call Islamic Jihad. There's a word, isn't it? Jihad. A word unfamiliar to so many of us 15 years ago, and now it's a part of our everyday vernacular. Jihad. War on the infidel. War on those who hate Islam. It's a new word that we're so used to. We woke up that Tuesday morning barely knowing, and now we never forget. At 9.37, another plane, Flight 77, crashes into the western side of the Pentagon at 530 miles per hour. Smoke smothers that brilliant D.C. sunshine. Somewhere in the air on Air Force One, the President of the United States struggles to switch gears from reading books to elementary school students in Sarasota, Florida. And now he utters words to the Vice President of the United States saying someone is going to pay. 
many watched smoldering buildings on TV and we couldn't fathom what was happening. Jet fuel and debris spewing out. Sweet people who woke up that day just like you with the world as their oyster now waving anything they could to get the attention of firefighters storming up the steps. They tried to find fresh air any way they could. Some began to jump and we all began to lose it inside. We began to wrestle with the questions bigger than our concert tickets, bigger than our jobs, bigger than our weekend plans, bigger than those tickets to the game, bigger than baby showers. My friend turned to me in those moments, and with an eerie, rather casual tone, he said, those towers won't stand. Perhaps just two hours ago, a firefighter living in Queens kissed his wife and children goodbye and did as we all do. He promised to pick something up on the way home. He promised to call her later. At 9.58, the South Tower collapses. At 10 a.m., the battalion chief orders all rescue personnel to evacuate the remaining tower. At 10.03 a.m., another hijacked plane that was bound for the Capitol is driven into the ground in Shanksville, Pennsylvania by people like you and I that woke up that Tuesday morning with the same view of life. At 10.28 a.m. on that Tuesday morning, the other tower collapses and all our lives are now being littered with the reality of evil, pain, worry, and death. We began as a nation to wrestle with new realities. As Christians, we were reminded of old ones. No one knows their time. Sin and death visit us all. And whether it be a singular death or the death of 3,000 in a matter of minutes, first comes death, and the Bible tells us, then comes judgment. We'll never know how our life will play out, but for believers in Christ, this day, as it did 15 years ago, should be our biggest reminder that we don't exist for ourselves. Yes, we should do good. Yes, we should take pride in our nation. But far and away, most important, 15 years after September 11th, we must be reminded as a Christian people that we exist to prepare others for the reality of truth. It's true that everybody, whether it be at the hands of terrorists, or whether it be at the hands of cancer, or whether it be simply at the hands of old age, will leave this world and they'll be forced to face their creator. Our job as Christians is to prioritize above everything else our existence around the idea, around the work of preparing people for that reality. Because the day will come where every single person that you love, every single child that you've reared, every single coworker that you've shared a desk with will exit this life. And we must be preparing them for the truth that is to come. 
This was the story of John the Baptist. As we come to the text today in our study of the Gospel of John, I didn't plan this out. I had a different introduction to the sermon this morning. Um, But it hit me midweek that preparing people for the truth is what John the Baptist's ministry was all about. And it's the ministry that each one of us inherit from Jesus Christ. We don't save people. Only Jesus does that. John the Baptist didn't save people. His job was to prepare them, as it should be for us. So I want to read the text this morning, and then I want to answer the question, how do we prepare other people for the truth? Read with me, if you would, John chapter 1. And let's pick up his ministry in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then are you, Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to them, him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. And the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This was John's ministry. It was to point people in a direction of truth. But how do we do that as believers today? Well, nothing has really changed since John the Baptist in regard to the ministry that we hold. I would would love to say that I pastor a church that's number one priority and passion is to point people towards Christ. Everything else they do is secondary to that. The most important thing is to see people come to Christ and to be saved. That was John's ministry. So how do we do this? How do we prepare other people for the truth? Well, the first thing I notice here in the text is this. We need to first remember who you are. Remember who we are. In the reading of this particular account of John the Baptist, he had not just one, but multiple opportunities to make this about himself. And yet he didn't. The crowd size was swelling. 
John the Baptist was gaining rock star status in the wilderness. People were coming from Jerusalem. I mean, this is no simple journey that people were making. And not just everyday people, but people who had positions of power and prestige were coming to sit at his feet. And everybody who came got a message that was not of John. They got a message that was of the Lord. The people were coming and it would just lend itself as waves of people would come to sort of this self-aggrandizement. The priests and the Levites, you know, asking, what, who are you, who are you, who are you? Waiting for some special revelation or title to pour out of his mouth. And he never gave them one. Because something tells me that a guy living in the wild, eating locusts and honey, wearing uh, animal skins, is not there because it's about himself. You just don't choose that lifestyle if it's about you. Yes, John's birth was special. His father and mother were of old age, Zechariah and Elizabeth. They weren't supposed to have children anymore. You remember the story. It's part of the, the Christmas narrative. And Zechariah gets his one day to do his priestly duty, and he's burning incense there in the temple. And all of a sudden, the, the angel of God appears and tells him, hey, you're going to have a son. And he doesn't believe him. And the, the angel removes his voice until John is born. And... Um, and Zechariah and Elizabeth have this young child who would be the forerunner. He would be the proclaimer, the one who would prepare people for the truth of who Jesus Christ is. So it was a special birth. I'm sure that a lot of people in different circles knew of how special it was. But John's life had unique purpose. John gained quite the following. But just like John, our role is always to subordinate ourselves to the mission and purpose of Jesus Christ. We are just street signs, folks. We are one-way arrow street signs, pointing people towards the only thing that can save them from the sin, devastation, and death of the world. We've heard the saying, death and taxes. It's true. Death will visit us all. Our role while we're on this earth is to point people. John knew his role, prophetically speaking. He said it in verse uh, 23. He said, I'm not the Christ. I'm just one crying out. I love that image, if you think about it. Well, I mean, what a cool title to have for yourself. I'm just a herald. I, I can't save you. I can't change your life. I can't fix your marriage. I can't fix your predicament of sin. I can't do any of that. And trust me, as a pastor, you get a lot of people that come to you and think that you can. And it's a very humbling experience to sit there with somebody in a counseling session and say, I'm really sorry that your life is jacked up. I'm sorry that you have these issues. I'm sorry that we all live in a broken world that's full of sin and that it's washing over you in this way. All I can do is point you towards Christ who can heal and point you towards Christ who forgives and point you towards Christ that when this life is over, gives you eternal life full of eternal joy. That was John's ministry. I'm not the Christ. I'm just one who's crying out. I need to give you a, a moment of 
reflection here because I want you to be leery of something. And I think I'm just echoing the many, many comments of the Apostle Paul here. We must be leery of teachers and ministry leaders that make it about them. They make it about them, and Christ is a mechanism to make it about them. The gospel is a mechanism to make it about them. And we have to be leery of these people. If they, Here's one way you can tell. If they have a so-called Christian ministry with their name in it, run. Be very careful and run. Just in doing a search this week of some popular heretical teachers, here are the names of their ministries. Benny Hinn Ministries. This is the name of their ministry. Legal names. Creeflo Dollar Ministries. Joyce Meyer Ministries. T.D. Jakes Ministries, Incorporated. Because you don't want to make sure you handle the tax ramifications, right? If the, if the ministry is about yours, you want to be incorporated properly. So much of the effective gospel message starts by preparing others out of our own humility and not out of our own notoriety. People need to look at us as heralds and be able to relate to us. I quote this all the time, but D.T. Niles defined evangelism this way. He said evangelism is simply one beggar telling another beggar where they can find food. I love that. May we never forget that we are always beggars who have simply been given the abundance of Christ's filling goodness. I love the way John Owen put it. He said this, when you think about your faith, remember that your faith in Christ is sanctifying and not personally glorifying. Every time you reflect on where you're at in Christ, your station in Christ, you should be reminded that you are in a sanctifying position. What does that mean? It means that you are constantly being remade. You are constantly being scrubbed. You're constantly being cleansed in the image of God. There's nothing about our station in Christ that ever brings us to the point where our faith is something that is glorifying of us. Our faith is always something that's glorifying of Christ. Nobody's going to want anything to do with your Jesus if they think that your relation with Jesus is all about you. That's not the gospel they need to hear anyway. So in humility, others see someone that they can identify with. Other people see somebody that they can relate to. No one models this better than the Apostle Paul. Let me read you two short verses here. In 1 Timothy 1.15, later in his life, he writes to his protege Timothy and he says these words. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. This is at the end of his life. At the end of his life, the attitude of his own life is still one of which he says, I am the chief of all sinners. All the good work, all the ministry, all the missions work that the Apostle Paul had done up to that point, all the people that he had led to Christ, 
all the young men that he had discipled, all the churches that he had started. And what was his attitude about himself? Jesus Christ came to save sinners, and I am the worst. And then he said in 1 Corinthians 15, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. There was something about his history that haunted the man. While he knew he was forgiven, he always operated out of a perspective of remembrance. He understood who he had been and what he had done to Christ, what he had done to the church. And he lived his life with the understanding that even in the midst of that, God saved me. And because God saved me out of that, he used it as fuel to move forward with the mission. He wanted to be a herald because he knew what kind of devastation he had done to the name of Christ earlier. And so it is of the person who operates out of humility. We're never going to point people towards Christ. They're never going to experience the truth of the gospel unless they find somebody that they can relate to and who they see as a broken individual just like them. You don't have to have it all together in your life in order to lead somebody to Jesus. You just need to be true to who you are as a broken, sinful human being who's been saved by grace through Christ. So that's the first thing we do to prepare other people for the truth. It starts with us in our humility. The second thing is this. We want to prepare other people for the truth. We can't shy away from the hard-hitting reality of sin. Don't do it. Don't shy away from the hard-hitting reality of sin. My personal belief is that, if I just go off on a tangent for a second, the church in America today, generally speaking, the evangelical church, is reaping the results of generation after generation of easy salvation. And what I mean by that is, we tell people, hey, you want to have a better life, hey, you want to be more comfortable when you die, hey, you want some fire insurance, walk the aisle, say a prayer, you'll feel good about yourself. That's not the gospel of the New Testament. And it started with the... the Ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist came in order to baptize people in repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is when you look at your life and you go, Oh my word, look how messed up I am. This is a travesty in God's eyes. Surely he's not pleased with this. Sin has washed over me. I am broken and disgusting in his presence. The Bible would say, even when we come to the point where we say, I am an enemy of God. That's repentance. Repentance is when you realize that. That's what John's ministry was about. Pointing at people, and he didn't care if you were the highest of high or the lowest of lows, pointing at people and saying, there is not one good thing in you that is pleasing to God. Nothing. And for the person who is saved by grace through faith, this is where salvation begins. You say, God, I... I know that I'm breaking your heart, and I know that I sin, and I know that I am not good to you. I, I don't want that. I want you. And when you turn to God and you say, I want you, that's the summation of repentance. When you turn away from who you are, your dead, sick self in sin, and you turn to God and you say, I don't want that anymore, I want you. But we have a lot of people who have said, God, I think what I'm going to do is... I'm going to hang out here, like I'm going to keep a toe in this, but I'm going to try and hold on to you at the same time and see if we can't make this thing work. 
That is called the church at Laodicea in the beginning of Revelation. And Jesus has a word for that. He says, you're lukewarm. You want to dabble in sin and you also want to hold on to me? I don't know you. Actually, what I'd rather do with you, if that's who you want to be, American church, I think what I'm going to do is just vomit you out of my mouth. Make up your mind. Because John the Baptist's ministry was to say, repent of these things, turn from them, and turn to God. I bring a baptism of repentance, is what John said. And it was in this very similar location right down the plain there from Jericho where the Jordan River cuts through the wilderness, that something happened hundreds and hundreds of years earlier that gives us the exact same message. Let me read it to you. You'll find it in Joshua chapter 3. The nation of Israel is moving out of what today is the wilderness of modern-day Jordan, and they're crossing over the Jordan River to finally inherit the promised land that God had meant for them And to get there, they had to cross the Jordan River at flood stage. So as if it didn't require enough faith, God doubled down and said, hey, how much faith you folks really got? So he asked them to cross the Jordan River at flood stage. And this is what happens. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those people bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priest bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water. Basically what he's saying here is they got their toe in it. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of the harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and those flowing down towards the Sea of Arabah, the salt sea, which we call the Dead Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. And now the priests, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan River. This uh, Earlier this uh, summer, late spring, when I stood there, I was just overwhelmed at this place with the thoughts of several things, key things that happened in this location. This was the first one, where the nation of Israel, by faith, chose to turn from their old life and inherit the promise of God. Catch that? Salvation began with turning from your old life, crossing by faith and inheriting the promises of God. But in this same place, hundreds of years later, John the Baptist would preach that message to the lost world. He would say, you must, you must, by faith, turn from your old self. And then there's one who would be baptized by John in the water. And just as the priest stood there in the water holding the Ark of the Covenant, And it held back the flood waters of destruction so that they could cross over into the promise of God. The Lord Jesus himself, who did not need to repent of sin, was baptized in that exact same place, in those waters, in order to drive home the point that there is only one way in which a person can turn from repentance and receive the promise of God, and that is by Jesus Christ himself. 
Who held the waters back for the nation of Israel to cross over? Who, as it says in the word here, I don't even know how you do this, but it piled up water in a heap. There weren't any stones. This wasn't, I've, I've read some commentaries of liberals who have said that, you know, well, this was like, uh, uh, this was uh, normally at this time there was this sort of natural event that occurred, and it occurred every five, six hundred years, and this was just that one. Really? Like on that exact day when they were crossing over, it happened. No, the waters piled up in a heap above and below, and God did that. The Lord Jesus Christ stopped those waters. And he does in our life too. When you turn from sin, what the Lord Jesus Christ does is he stands in the gap and he stops the flood of sin from pouring over you so that you can inherit the righteous promise of God. That was John's message. Sin is real. You, how, why would you even be, want to be saved if you don't even want to leave that which you need to be saved from? It makes no sense. Repentance is so important. I preached on repentance one time, uh, maybe a couple years ago. And I got uh, several emails on our church uh, website. People had listened to the message. There is actually a, a, a sect of Christianity out there that believes that we do not need to preach repentance because it's a works-based salvation. That by telling somebody they have to turn from their sin, that we're placing upon them an expectation of works. And they were the most hateful emails I've ever seen uh, and had since I've been pastoring. Uh, and they, they were so, like, don't, don't tell people they need to turn from their sin. They just need to trust in Christ. Well, trust in Christ for what? That he forgives you from your sin. This is the whole ministry of John the Baptist. Turn from, tell people they need to turn from sin. Don't just go to people and say, hey, you want to have a better life? Turn to Jesus. That's horrible. Just start your own ministry, you know, and give it your name, incorporated. That's terrible teaching. What you need to do is say, look, just like you, this is where the humility comes in. You want to lead somebody to Jesus? You say, hey, can I tell you my story? Uh, I came to a point in time where I realized that nothing I did was pleasing to God. The Bible calls that sin. I had made a mockery trying to fix my life on my own. I thought I could please God. I could do enough good things that would make God happy with me. And the Bible says just the opposite, that I can never make God happy in my own strength that I'm always going to be seen as an enemy of his. And because I'm a sinner, what began to happen was the consequences of those things washed over me and it began to destroy me from the inside out until finally I realized that I needed to turn from that. I needed to, to ask God to forgive me. But in order for God to forgive me, he needed a way to penalize me. The penalty could not go away. Which brings me to the third point today. Well, let me read you one more verse along this line of repentance. John the Baptist's main ministry was to point out people's sin. We think that's a bad thing today. Don't tell people they've done things wrong. Don't. It's not a Christian's place to judge. I'm not saying judge. I'm just saying tell them the truth. The truth is that my wife Mindy is as big a screw-up as I am. My buddy Tim here is a horrible screw-up. He's a sinner, right, Tim? Yeah, really bad one. Steve in the back, terrible sinner, right? Yeah. And ladies, you don't get off the hook just because you're sweet-natured and you raise children. You're all awful. Michelle Day, terrible person. 
awful sinner. What's different about these people is they were willing to admit it and realize that Jesus is the only solution to that sin. Matthew 3, 7 to 11. John the Baptist is another account of his ministry. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, I love this, you brood of vipers, meaning you, you bunch of deadly snakes, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? This is great. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. You're going to get a baptism one way or the other. You're going to get a baptism with the Holy Spirit, or you're going to get a baptism with fire. I prefer the Holy Spirit. Third point today. After people are forced to wrestle with their need to repent, wrestle with the reality of sin, it brings us to this. To prepare others for the truth means we point people towards the Lamb. Point people towards the Lamb. I could have used a lot of words there to describe Christ, but I used the word that John the Baptist used. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that tells us something. We know that most likely this account that John the Apostle has written is the, an account of John the Baptist after he baptized Jesus. Because he talks about the, um, John the Baptist having seen the, the Holy Spirit descend like a dove, and, and we know that that occurred at Jesus' baptism. So he's talking about it kind of past tense. And when Jesus comes by again, he says, hey, stops everything he's doing, and he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. There he is. That's him. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So much depth and significance to this one statement that it overwhelmed me this week. It would have put the Jews who were there on notice immediately. This would not have been a, a flippant sort of passing statement. This is not something that would have just been lost on the Jewish crowd that was standing there. They understood full well that what the words lamb and sacrifice uh, and sin meant in the same statement. They would, have, they would have gotten that immediately. And when they pointed to this man, this burly fellow, who for 20 years had been a carpenter in Nazareth, and now all of a sudden itinerant preacher in the wilderness and itinerant preacher in Galilee, they would have gotten that there's a connection being made here. In this one statement, this verbiage tells us something the first thing we see here is the image of the, the deliverance and the Passover. If you remember from our study of Exodus, what did they have to slaughter in order to uh, be delivered that night in the Passover? They slaughtered a lamb, didn't they? And what did they do with the blood? They took the blood and they, they, 
they plastered it over the, the lentil and the, the door frames of their home that when the angel of death passed by, it would literally pass by their home onto the, the next place. It was the blood of a lamb that, that enabled the Passover, that enabled the deliverance of the nation of Israel out of Egypt. In this statement, we see the image of the blood sacrifice. We're told that, that the, the blood of the animals in Jerusalem at the times of atonement would just would there be so much blood that the, the priests would be up to their, their calves and their knees in the blood of animals because they kept sacrificing lamb after lamb, heifer and goat just to get to that point where maybe God would receive their sacrifice and grant forgiveness for their sin. So when they said, when John said the lamb who takes away, there must have been a great level of confusion in the minds of the crowd at that point as he points to Jesus and they're thinking blood and he's pointing towards a human. Almost unable to reconcile. And in this statement, we see something else. We really see the innocence of our Jesus. We see the innocence of our Christ. The prophet Isaiah said this about Jesus in chapter 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Right? That's, that's sin. And the Lord has laid on him, who's him? Christ. The iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. This is so important to get this, folks. So important to understand this. Isaiah said he's led like a lamb to the slaughter. Lambs, this idea of being led is important. Uh, lambs simply go where they are led. They do. So when, when John the Baptist and Isaiah make this analogy and they relate the Christ to a lamb, we say, well, didn't our Jesus, uh, wasn't he led by Roman soldiers out to the cross? Yes, he was. But ultimately, what led Christ to the cross? It was the will of his Father. It was obedience to the will of his Father to die for the sins of all mankind. He was led by his Father to the cross to die for the sins. From the moment he was arrested in the garden, he was led to Caiaphas' house. After Caiaphas' house, he was led before Pilate. After Pilate, he was led to Herod. After Herod mocked him, he was led to Pilate again. And after Pilate, the second time, he was led to the cross. Mark 15, 20. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. He did go willingly, 
So it says here that he did not open his mouth, that he remained silent, as sheep do when you lead them before the shears. You lead them in, they remain silent, and they're sheared. Now, I'm not a much of a husbandry man. I don't know much about agriculture and don't really care to. But I know enough to know that, generally speaking, you lead a sheep in to be sheared, and they just remain quiet while they're being sheared. 1 Peter 2.23, Peter said, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When he's led before the high priest, and they're just trying to get him to admit to something that he had done wrong, of course, which is impossible because he did not do anything wrong. He was completely innocent before the Father. And in Matthew 26, it says, And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? He's getting frustrated. Dude, defend yourself. Say something. What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. They wanted him to open his mouth. They wanted him to defend himself. He wasn't going to do it. And before Pilate, in the next chapter of Matthew, Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they're testifying against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. I want you to get an image here, church, of what's going on. It wasn't some government ruling or government injustice that killed Jesus. It wasn't some religious conspiracy that killed Jesus. It wasn't political or religious rulers that killed Jesus, and it wasn't Roman soldiers that ultimately killed Jesus. Yeah, I mean, they're the ones that did the deed. Get this. It was the wrath of his heavenly Father that killed Jesus Christ. It was God's wrath that killed Jesus Christ. Say, how is that possible? Because remember I talked about paying for the penalty? We're sinners. We repent of those things. We turn to God. We say, I don't want to be that anymore. And God says, oh, I just, I'd, I'd love to forgive you. But in order for God to forgive us, he's also just. He cannot tip a hat or wink an eye at sin. Sin has to be paid for. Sin has to be judged. So what the Heavenly Father did through the life of Christ was to take that which should have been your wrath and my wrath and poured it out on His Son as due penalty for the sins of the world. So when John the Baptist said, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, this statement is so sweeping, so large, at the crux of it is so much of what the New Testament means. What he's saying at this point in time is, and people just don't realize it yet, God is going to sacrifice this man who is perfect, the Lamb of God, the innocence of God. He is going to take, put on a cross, kill him, in order that our sins, which we do not deserve to be forgiven, will be forgiven. 
That's the love of God. That was the message of John the Baptist. And yet, what do we do in churches today? Mm, don't talk about that. I mean, it's not politically correct. You can't talk about it. Those sinners are going to make them feel bad. We don't want to feel bad. People are supposed to get participation trophies. We don't want to do any of that stuff, you know? We don't want our young children to grow up with self-esteem issues. If they know that they're sinners, they're going to feel bad about themselves. We don't want adults to feel bad about themselves, you know, or if we tell them that they're sinners and that they need to turn to Christ, you know, maybe that will reap some sort of uh, destructive behavior in their life. They're going to have to sever relationships. They're going to have to change their life. We worry about all these things. Look, that's not our job to worry about those things. The Great Commission says, I'm a sinner, and in humility, I want to tell you that you're a sinner. And because you're a sinner, you're destined for hell, just like I was destined for hell. But God loved the world so much that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's the Lamb of God. That's what we need to point people towards. In this world of authoritarian, powerful, wealthy role models, there's a worldwide history of God's of a God of might and glory. Here at the start of Christ's ministry, in these few words, we see a different destiny, at least on earth. What we see in the ministry of Christ is one of submission. We see one of sacrifice. We see one of grief. We see one of pain. And yet as Christians, we say out loud sometimes to God, we say, Lord, why would you save me to such a life of struggle and suffering and pain? Why not? I mean, are you not a vessel of the living God? Is he not pouring Christ out through you? And in pouring Christ out through you, is Christ's ministry not one of grief and pain and suffering and love and justice and mercy and forgiveness? They all go together. You can't separate them. They all go together. Then there's this beautiful aspect we begin to wind down here. You can't, I'm learning in this study, you, you have a hard time separating the Gospel of John from John's writing in Revelation. In the book of Revelation, the most common used title for Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation, guess what it is? Lamb. By far and away more than any other title used for Christ. Any other name used for Jesus in the book of Revelation is Lamb. Some 29 times it's used in the book of Revelation. He's referred to as the Lamb of God. In comparison, the title of Jesus Christ, seven. The title of Christ by itself, four. Look at this, Revelation 5, 11 to 12. John says this, getting this vision of heaven, and he says, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, and thousands of thousands. Imagine how many angelic beings that is, and they're all shouting and proclaiming, as we will someday, the exact same thing for all of eternity. We will just keep cramming out of our pie holes, and we'll be saying to God, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And after you finish saying that, guess what you do? You man up and you say it again, and you say it again with the thousands upon thousands and myriads and myriads in a much better voice than we manage here in church on Sunday morning. We will keep shouting, worthy is the lamb, worthy is the lamb who was slain. 
Listen to me, church. People need the Lamb of God. We do a lot of things around here to try and, you know, build relationships or whatever, but if we're doing warm touch, soft touch outreaches, uh, we're inviting people to Bible studies, and those are great, and we need to keep doing those, but we do them for a purpose. The purpose is this, to point people towards the Lamb of God. The reality of sin demands that we do this. The ministry of John the Baptist demands that we do this. Jesus died so that the church might point people towards Him and that those people might be saved. We do not exist for lights and smoke and nice buildings. We don't exist in order to have a a, a well-pronounced budget. All those things enable ministry. But the ministry itself is to point people towards the Lamb in order that they might be saved from their sin. And a lot of us, hey, can I just be brutally honest? A lot of us, most of us are going to leave today and we're going to forget this message. We're going to go and we're going to, we're going to plan things and we're going to decide what we want to do for lunch and we're going to figure out you know, how we're going to get the kids ready and off to school tomorrow morning and we're going to have stuff that we're going to need to buy and fill our pantries with. On and on and on and on. Don't be that person. Your number one mission, God didn't create you to feel good about yourself and God didn't create you to have pleasure. God created you to be His pleasure. And what brings Him the greatest pleasure is when you prioritize the gospel above everything else. Days are getting short. Let's point people towards Christ. I'm going to close with just four questions. Before you pack all up, just reflect on these. I'm going to ask you four questions. and They're not on your note sheet, so you can write them down if you want. The first question is this. Am I operating out of humility towards everyone I encounter so that I don't block their view of the cross? I'll say that again. Am I operating out of humility towards everyone I encounter so that I don't block their view of the cross? Second, Not to be too personal, but this is important. Have I become apathetic and unconcerned about the judgment that awaits others due to their sin? Have I become apathetic and unconcerned about the judgment that awaits others because of their sin? Whether we tell somebody about Christ or not, we're still going to get judged you might as well be the vessel that God uses to point them towards salvation. And if it doesn't concern you, then that concerns me. Third, when was the last time I told somebody about forgiveness and eternal life in the Lamb? Studies vary, but generally speaking, they all are north of 95%. 95% of people who claim to be Christians in America today will never share the truth of the gospel with another person over the course of their entire life. How is that? I can't even process that. Why do you even go to church? And fourthly, have I personally been forgiven and born again in Christ. 
my guess is in a, a room like this this morning, let's say we got 100 people here in the building, there's at least a handful that have never done what I talked about this morning, what John the Baptist talked about. Well, you do an honest assessment of your life and you say, I'm not perfect. I believe what the Bible said. I believe that I'm a sinner. I believe that in my own strength, I'm unable of pleasing God in every aspect of my life. And the Bible says that the remedy to that is the Lamb who went to the cross and died, bled, poured out His blood in order that you and I might be forgiven. This is not a business transaction and this isn't some sort of um, religious function that we perform. This is an honest to goodness, faith decision where you come to God and you say, I don't want to be that person anymore. And, and through the work of the Holy Spirit and my belief and trust in Jesus Christ, I need you to forgive me. And what God does is so that anybody who confesses that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised Him from the dead, that then you'll be saved. Romans chapter 10. Let today be the day where you look to the cross and receive that forgiveness. I'm going to close in prayer and I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that. And here's what I want you to do. If you make that decision today, I want you to tell me about it. I don't want you to leave this place without coming up to me after the service is over. I don't care if I'm talking to somebody else. You interrupt them. You come up to me and you grab me and you say, hey, before I leave, I just wanted you to know that I did ask Christ to be my Savior. Because I'll drop everything I'm doing at that point talk to you. I care about somebody's weekend and I want to know how somebody's doing in school, but if you just accepted Christ, you're the most important thing to me at that moment. And everybody in this room would agree with me when I say that. Let's go to the Lord.